Shivani Samaya, and welcome back to the Financial Executives Podcast. Despite living through a hyper-technological and digital age, the power of live entertainment has proven time and time again to be paramount to the sanity of our social survival as humans. Yet when the coronavirus took the world by storm, the live entertainment industry was among the first to shutter their doors. And despite the majority of the U.S. economy having opened back its doors for business and adapted to a new way of life under this pandemic, live entertainment is still among the last to have welcomed back its customers. Today, I'm really excited to host Brian Parisi, Chief Financial Officer at Break the Floor Productions, the nation's preeminent dance production company, for our final forward-thinking session of the 2021 year. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Shivani. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And before we get into the conversation to truly understand the role of finance in keeping live entertainment alive, I want to ask you, um, you know, how did you find yourself to this industry? I see that you've been in the live entertainment space for some time now. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've been in entertainment now for about 20 years. Um, you know, I started out actually in technology. Uh, but then coming out of graduate school at USC and wanting to stay in Los Angeles, I kind of narrowed down the industry to either either entertainment, because there are so many entertainment companies in L.A., or um, I was looking at uh, defense defense companies like Boeing, Northrop Grumman that were big in L.A. back back then. Not not so much these days, but coming out of USC, you know, there's a really strong tie between USC and then the entertainment companies here in Los Angeles. So my first job out of out of uh, graduate school was with Universal Studios and I spent some time at Warner Brothers, uh, a short period of time at DreamWorks Animation, uh, spent some time at Live Nation, uh, worked at the NFL, NFL in, in sports and entertainment and now at, at Break the Floor Productions here in North Hollywood. So yeah, it's been a kind of a wild ride and everything you said on the lead in, yeah, our industry was hit extremely hard and I know we're gonna talk a little bit about that, but you know, it's, it's been a really a crazy ride over the last two years. I want to take a moment to just go back in time a little to give a little context to the conversation that we're going to be happening. But I'm going to ask you a very specific question. But do you recall where you were on Sunday, March 15? March? Yeah. And a lot of people probably have different dates pegged throughout the pandemic. For me, it was March 15th of 2020. Um, that's when, you know, our business, we, we do production tours and we're in cities all around the country. Um, you know, and by March, you know, right into March, you know, the pandemic really started to grow. I mean, it was sort of a big, you know, sort of being noticed in January, a little bit more in February and March 15th, you know, the executive team and myself, we met, we said, look, you know, yeah, economies, states, cities, economies are shutting down. We, we should shut down as well. Um, and so March 15th, that was the last of our weekend shows across the U.S., on that Monday, we were we we went deep and we ended up shutting down sort of our company uh, to really kind of manage through the pandemic. And on that topic, can you can you just speak to some of the challenges that you faced right at the onset of the pandemic? Because I can imagine 
um, you know, the work from home model that a lot of companies and businesses adopted to to adapt to the pandemic. I imagine that that model wouldn't really necessarily work for live entertainment companies. So can you speak to some of the challenges that you faced right at the very beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, well, yeah I mean, for us, you know, in, in the entertainment you know, industry, whether it's film, TV, concerts, you know, or what we do, you know, we have a lot of seasonal and part-time staff. So, you know, that really worked the events for us. So when, when we're not having events, they're not getting paid. So there was a, an immediate impact to all of our seasonal and part-time staff. For our full-time staff, you know, we went through, you know, we ended up just, we, we decided, which was the right call at the time, but we decided to go deep right away. We furloughed a number of employees that were salaried employees. And, and for those of us that remain, including myself and the CEO all the way down to, uh, you know, for all the staff, we took significant pay cuts in March to really trying to manage our cash flow through the pandemic because we didn't know at that time how long it was going to last. And in hindsight, that was a really smart call that our CEO made and we did as an executive team to really kind of preserve that cash, you know, over time. And, you know, if you look at our business, as well as certainly the concerts business that, you know, my time at Live Nation, I'm very familiar with, um, you know, you, you have a lot of cash because you're selling tickets in advance of shows, but that cash is not really your cash until the event plays off. So we had a, a significant amount of cash, but we had a lot of events that we were, we were not, we were not canceling, we were postponing because we weren't sure when we we're going to be able to sort of ramp back up. And that's very similar with Ticketmaster and other sort of concert activity as well. We had a lot of cash on the books, but you really don't have access to that cash. So, yeah, we, we turned into putting together, you know, weekly cash flow analysis and statements. I worked a lot with our, you know, we didn't, we had a lot of real estate you know, we have real estate debt on the books. We don't have any other debt, but we had real estate debt. So I was working with our lenders, our mortgage lenders on, you know, forbearance on, uh, on those payments, which everyone was very cooperative in. You know, we had some leases that we asked our, our partners to postpone until we kind of worked through the pandemic. So, yeah, we went into heavy cash management and maintenance mode, like a lot of companies did, but, you know, it was unique in the entertainment industry because we had a lot of cash, but we couldn't really access it and use it because we weren't sure how many refunds we were going to have to give. So yeah, we turned into significant cash mode, uh, just from a financial perspective, which a lot of companies did as well. As far as work from home, you know, you know, we, we keep a relatively small staff here. And like I said, a lot of our seasonal part-time staff, you know, work from home already. They're in other cities that just fly in and travel to our events. So, you know, again, for them, unfortunately, you know, you know, our work wasn't available for them and maybe they were able to diversify. Uh, but if our work from home really was pretty easy to transition into, you know, as a company, we use Slack as a way to communicate. A lot of companies use Slack and similar tools. So we were pretty adept to sort of manage through that from a work from home perspective. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was certainly a focus on, on cash flow uh, to sort of manage through that. I'm really glad that you bring up the, the topic or the conversation around cash flow management and maintenance. Um, it's really interesting to hear that that was kind of the first mode that you went into. But it's exceptional because as the CFO of um, you know, a preeminent uh, dance company, I'm kind of interested to learn a little bit more about the strategies that you implemented to help maintain a positive cash flow um, as opposed to a negative. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, for us, I mean, we were getting, you know, we would get, you know, six-figure daily sales reports that went to zero almost immediately. You know, once we once we canceled and or postponed our shows on March 16th that Monday. Um, but you know, we were fortunate, and and you know, in my prior lives, I didn't spend a lot of time working with the SBA. Uh, you know, other than to do some real estate loans potentially. But when you work for large public companies, you don't necessarily know or deal with the SBA a lot. But I really, you know, coming out of this, I really got to know them very well um, because the CARES Act funding really was a, was channeled and funneled through the SBA. So we took advantage of, we qualified for, you know, PPP round one, PPP round two. Uh, there's an EIDL loan that we qualified for. Uh, Main Street lending debt that we took on the books, um, as well as the shutter venue grant. So we really hit as much as we could to keep that cash flow coming in and, and keep you know keep payroll going and keep our expenses going until we can manage through the the pandemic. Um, but you know, you know, we you know we would not be here if it wasn't for the CARES Act and the funding that we got through you know through the SBA. So you mentioned when I asked you this question at the onset, you mentioned that your company was fortunate enough to be able to maintain a positive cash flow. But I'm a little curious to know if whether the strategies that you implemented as a CFO at Break the Floor, was that possible for a lot of companies um, within the broader entertainment industry at the early stages of the pandemic to maintain a positive cash flow? And was this in part due to the, the support that you received from the government? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, unfortunately, though, we, we, see, we see, you know, uh, competitors in our industry, we see, you know, sort of tangential sort of companies that, that we deal with, um, as well as throughout entertainment and, and, and film and TV that did not make it through. You know, they were able to get, you know, so far on, I think, some of the, the CARES Act funding, but this has been an 18 to, you know, 20 month you know, issue for entertainment different from some of the other industries. So there are a lot of companies that really, um, you know, did not make it through. Uh, we were fortunate enough to make it through and we're, we're still just coming out of it right now, quite honestly. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of our competitors and again, some of our industry partners were not able to make it. That's uh, really interesting that you say that, you know, you're still making it through, uh, you made it, and some companies were not fortunate enough to come out of the pandemic. But from a business perspective, what strategies um, did or are the media and live entertainment companies implementing to focus on returning back to pre-pandemic levels of prof profitability? Seems like a lot more entertainment companies are using mergers and acquisitions in a buy and build approach to restore their profits. What are your thoughts around this? Is it successful? Is it working? And are there any impacts of this uh, for the long term for the, the broader industry? Yeah, I, I think us, like a lot of industries that were impacted by the pandemic, we really took a hard look at our cost structure. Um, some of the positions that we furloughed were eliminated. We, we're, we're not bringing back. We're going to sort of redistribute that workload or do things differently going forward. Um, you know, I follow, you know, a lot of the industry players, whether it's in film, TV or, or live entertainment and like Live Nation, for example, you know, they came back and they said, you know, they're going to reduce fixed costs during the pandemic and they're going to net bring back 
you know, less to save nearly 200 million a year in sort of fixed cost savings. I think a lot of companies are doing that. They're really, they really took that time to really evaluate, you know, their cost structure because they really had to, we had to, um, and think about how can we, when we do start to ramp back up, are we doing it in the most efficient and smart way for our business? Um, whether it's doing it, you know, internally or outsourcing it or, or, or using tools to do it more effectively, like a zoom, like zoom, for example, that's taken off obviously with the, the work from home, you know, everyone has been, you know, a lot more comfortable now working on, on zoom. And we see that. So, you know, that's one of the permanent, I think advantages or, or positive things coming out of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, some of the strategies, strategies we looked at too, I mean, we certainly looked at from an M&A perspective. Um, you know, I actually thought, and I talked to some of our, our sort of debt and lender partners to potentially look at taking some cash, bring them to the company, make some acquisitions, because we did see some of our partners that needed those lifelines that we could integrate into our business that when we come out, we would be in a lot better place. Um, you know, I thought I would see that throughout the industry also, whether it was film, TV, or or in, in live entertainment. And, and I didn't see it as much. And I didn't see a lot of interest because I think there was so much uncertainty about when we were going to get back to, you know, I call it 2019 levels because that's, you know, that's kind of the peg now is when will we get back to the 2019 levels? Um, there was so much uncertainty about when that was going to go back that, uh, that there, there wasn't really nearly as much M&A activity or M&A interest that I thought there would be. Um, I think that we're starting to see that a little bit now. Um, I'm seeing through, you know, just through press releases, some of the companies in the entertainment industry are starting to make those, you know, M&A investments. We certainly are looking at that as well, because I, I do feel like, as, as at least in our society here, even with Delta and Omicron potentially coming, you know, I feel like we're, we're really getting closer to business as usual, um, which is creating some opportunities from an M&A perspective. You talked about some of the positives that has come with the work from home model in relation to the live entertainment industry. And I'm really glad that you bring that up because I wanted to ask, you know, there has, and we talked about this in our previous um, forward thinking session about the rise of the streaming culture and how that's really impacted production companies. But I'm curious to know if the rise of, you know, the work from home model has made it easier for artists to stream their own music and what impact this has on, you know, entertainment companies who put up shows and have concerts with these live artists. Yeah, and streaming is interesting, and we tried it as a company during the pandemic. But I and I'll go back a little bit. You know, when I was at Live Nation, you know, in their festivals division as the head of finance, you know, we started to stream our festivals. Um, you know, and then it started to get cost. You know, it, it was very cost prohibitive before to stream, and the, and the quality wasn't there. But when I was there, it started to get better. The cost started coming down. The quality was there. But what we found out, what I found out is that, you know, when we looked at sort of the data afterwards is, you know, you really can't replace, well, two things. You really can't replace a live, you know, being physically there to, to experience live music and live entertainment. Um, you just can't replace it. You, you know, to be there, to, to you know, all, this, all, the, all the visceral feelings you get from being there, you can't get on a, you know, sitting in front of a TV or your monitor or your phone in the same way. Um, so, but, but, it's, but it's interesting though, because what, what, we, what we saw is when the pandemic first started, a lot of artists, um, 
you know, try to use streaming as a way to, you know, still connect with their, with their, uh, their fan base. You know, we did it as well. We did a, a streaming event with, uh, Charlie D'Amelio from TikTok. We did a streaming event with her, um, and we did a couple other smaller things as well. But what we also realized is that a lot of people don't really want to pay for it. There's a lot of free content out there. Some will, some will pay for that Taylor Swift, you know, VIP package, or, you know, in our case with Charlie, some people would pay for, for that event. But for the most part, you know, a lot of, a lot of the consumers do not want to pay for that sort of live streaming. So it was interesting. I started to notice that when the pandemic first started, a lot of artists were, online and streaming and doing very creative things because you know either they had an album to promote or you know they were it was right before they were going back into the studio but you, i started to notice that and i think everyone sort of seen that from an entertainment perspective that i started that kind of activity started to decline as the pandemic went on because i think again there is no replacing sort of being physically there whether it's at our events or a concert or even going to a movie so to have that streaming through, I think losing that experience was impactful. Um, in fact, there were people talking about that being a, a permanent, you know, sort of a permanent change to the marketplace that streaming is going to become a much, you know, widely used and broader platform for artists to sort of connect with their fans. And, and I just don't think we're seeing that yet. Um, you know, maybe there still will be some more traction as maybe there's more creativity around that, but my experience back in festivals and then certainly through the, through the pandemic, there's just not enough stickiness, I don't think, to sort of the streaming of live entertainment. You are absolutely correct when you say that you can't replace the feeling of being in person. And it seems like um, over time, what's played out is you know, withholding that feeling has potentially had the possibility of altering social behaviors and that we've, you know, missed these concerts and live gatherings so much that now that we have the opportunity to go back to them, it seems like numbers are coming back in, you know, triple fold and people are coming back even more eager and excited. But how is the alteration of social behavior, if at all, you know, impacting the future of what live entertainment looks like. And I'm referring perhaps particularly to a very um, notable or news noteworthy event that just took place for the wrong reasons. And I'm talking about Astroworld, where it seems like people were so eager to come back to these live events that they became kind of aggressive. And that feeling of, you know, being together made people want to run to the, the front of the, the concert halls. And you know, how is the alteration of social behavior, does that have an impact on, you know, your financial outlook, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there's been a lot of talk about all the, you know, a lot of pent up demand, whether it's going to a movie, going to a concert, going to a football game or a basketball game. I mean, that, that pent up demand is real. And, and we're seeing that right now. I mean, the peg for me was, you know, always Lollapalooza of this year. You know, back in late July, early August, Lollapalooza was really kind of the first big festival that wasn't postponed. You know, Coachella was put, pushed out, postponed. Other big festivals were, were pushed out or postponed. But Lollapalooza had its event in, in Chicago at the end of July, early August. And it was it was amazing. It was 100,000 people a day. 
in Chicago. They were doing the testing at the door, 95% success rate, you know, per the promoters. Um, to me, that was okay. We are the pent up demand has been building and building and building. This is sort of this outpouring of sort of just emotion, you know, at a, at a, at a large concert. Uh, which is Lollapalooza. And then that was followed up shortly after you started to look at, you know, the college football season started and you saw these stadiums of a hundred thousand people, 80,000 people just packed and NFL games. And, you know, so I think as a society, yes, all that pent up demand sort of just started to culminate and coalesce around these really large events that felt confident enough to have, you know, the right, the right, you know, sort of measures in place to protect its fans and then the participants. Um, but you started to see that happen really towards the end of, you know, or into August, September, and then into Q4 of, um, you know, what we're seeing now. So, um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, so we're definitely seeing the demand. I think what we're looking at, you know, I've looked at 2022 and even into 2023, I think 2022 for entertainment is going to be probably uh, a breakout year. Um, I think it's going to be 2019, if not, at least, if not better. Um, some of that is inflationary as well. I mean, we're seeing ticket prices go up uh, because the demand is there. So it's really the market, the, the market uh, functions are, are sort of taking, uh, taking that into account. Um, and then, uh, uh, and then 2023, I, I see that normalizing a little bit more. Probably the, the the bump that you have in 2022, I see it coming down in 2023. Prices will start to come down because there are some headwinds, um, you know, inflationary pressures. Uh, labor supplies, the cost of things, you know, those things are really headwinds against not, not just our industry, but all the industries that will start to impact, you know, probably pricing as well as sort of bottom line profitability. Uh, but I see 22 really shaping up to be a, a really a great year for the entertainment industry because because of that pent up demand. Um, and, and furthermore, you know, if you look at music, for example, a lot of artists in 2022 you know, instead of going on the road, went back into the studio and started making more music. So there's a lot more music out there. There's a lot more interest now to take that music that was created in 20, that was created in 21 and start to go out and, and share with their fans in 22 and 23. So I think we'll see that huge bump, you know, next year and then 20, uh, and then the following year. And then Astro World in particular. Um, yeah, you know, you know, that's, you know, some of that probably is, you're right. You know, there's just so much excitement and demand, but a lot of that was just, you know, probably the need to have the thought process of what happens if that happens. And I'm not sure that that was thought through by, you know, certainly the organizers and promoters. I know for our festivals, I, I'm not sure that I remember having many discussions on the possibility of that happening. So sometimes these new, you know, things like this happen or like the route 99 in Las Vegas, for example, sometimes these tragedies happen and as an industry, we shift, we fix, and we focus on, you know, preventing that from going from ever happening going forward. So yeah, Astroworld, I think is a good lesson for us just from a production standpoint and security and safety standpoint for all live events going forward. And, and you saw that actually the following weekend, there were still a number of festivals that happened the following weekend and they were already making changes to their, you know, their security and safety protocols to address what happened. And On the topic of shifting and refocusing, you know, now we're reaching the two year mark on when COVID was a 
global pandemic. And we have throughout the entirety of the conversation spoken about some of the changes that this pandemic has brought upon us. So looking at the changes from a social perspective of the work from home model and the rise of, you know, more content and what that meant for streaming and for artists and what that meant for live entertainment. We've also looked at some of the changes that came financially. So looking at the mergers and acquisitions and some very, um, very specific strategies that you as a CFO implemented to keep your um, businesses cash flow positive. But I'm curious to understand what aspects um, of these changes, in your opinion, are temporary or which are permanent? And is this for the better or for the worse, in your opinion? Yeah, no, I think, you know, and we're still working through some of, you know, what's temporary versus permanent. But I think for live entertainment, um, you know, concerts, what we do, film and TV, I, I, I see a lot of this as being temporary. Um, well, certainly film and TV through streaming has been a, a changing model for quite some time. But as far as really live entertainment, um, you know, work from home for us, again, because we're, we have, we're just by nature very, you know, very uh, distributed in terms of our workforce. We, we were able to handle that pretty well. So that was always kind of a permanent thing. Now I think we have better tools in place to, to be more efficient. So that's a permanent change, I would say. Uh, but I think, you know, for us, just the live, again, the live experience streaming is not going to replace the live entertainment experience. So I see anything that was done from a, a streaming perspective, I see that as being, you know, temporary. Um, you know, again, I really see 2022 really a great year and getting back to what, you know, 2019 levels. And I think 2023 is going to be a very normalized again, all qualified with Omicron and other variants that potentially could come through. But 2023, I would sense that that's going to be a, look a lot like 2019, look a lot like a very normal, you know, slate of events, timing of events, size of events uh, to what, you know, to what 2019 was as well. So as a CFO, you know, it's we survived. We have now a stronger focus on cash flow, which we will permanently implement going forward to have sort of uh, you know, a stronger view of how's our cash, what's our reserve look like, and do we have enough for, you know, sort of a rainy day fund, I'll, I'll call it, because we never had that before. Um, so from a CFO perspective, I think it's a stronger focus on cash, which is probably always a good thing anyway. Um, but I think it's, you know, manage your costs, optimize your top line and try and drive profitability. That always existed before. It's more important now than ever to make sure that that's a, a, a credo you live by from a company. And that's something we'll look at going forward as well. Thanks for talking about some of the um, CFO specific um, trends that you think are positive on a permanent basis, because the next thing that I want to ask you is how can finance leaders support their teams and companies that are still going through these turbulent times and are still looking to make it out of the pandemic? Well, you know, if, yeah, and again, we're, we're coming out of it now, but there are, there are some companies, you're right, that are, that are still struggling, some industries, um, you know, the entertainment industry in, in total, I think is coming out of it. But I, I think it's, it's continue to do what you were doing before, which is focus on cash flow, um, focus on working capital, 
we'll look at your cost structure to try and minimize certainly in the short term what that cost structure is going to look like. So I think it's continuing to focus on on cash and and let cash and working capital sort of drive a lot of your near term business decisions. Um, and to the extent that there are M&A opportunities, whether it's you taking on a partner, uh, which we actually look to do as well, you know, in, in a couple of different situations, um, you know, take on a partner that can bring some of that capital and support to your organization, I think is something that a lot of companies are looking at right now as well. And I am sure, uh, I'm certain because um, at FEI National, on a national level, we've been having a lot of conversations about, you know, the return to live events. And I know that this is a conversation that hits home for a lot of our chapters and our chapter leaders as well. So before I pivot towards um, any advice that you might have for chapter leaders, I just want to take a, a second to remind our attendees that much of this conversation between Brian and I is really guided by uh, their interest. And so I really encourage you, if you have any questions, to submit them so that Brian can answer as many as possible. Um, but going back now, you know, I, I mentioned that FEI National and also FEI Chapters, we hold a lot of live events. So what advice would you give them going into 2022 and possibly even 2023 with the outlook that you have for live events? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, and it's, there, there are very few really easy national answers here. I think regionally, I, I think, and we're doing it here in Los Angeles, I think we, we, we sort of follow the guidance from our, you know, whether it's cities, counties, or you know, any municipalities on what the proper rules and regulations we should be following. Um, so look, I, I would think, you know, we're a professional organization and, and uh, uh, with members that, you know, having expectations that it's going to be a safe environment, physically safe environment for them to participate. So I would think that certainly following the protocols, again, that are guided by your local uh, local governments is, is certainly the right way to go. I really appreciate that answer. And it looks like we have um, an attendee question that's come in. So I'm going to pause our conversation to take this one in. But um, the attendee wants to know, with the furlough of your staff at the start of COVID, are you seeing any difficulties uh, rehiring or hiring staff again currently? Yeah, actually, yes. I mean, we, we, had, we had to make some really tough decisions on what are the critical functions and who are the critical people to get the, get the job done. So we, we had to furlough uh, some, some really good people. And unfortunately, when you, when you sort of put, allow pe really good people to be on the market, uh, they'll find something new. So there are a handful of people that, you know, really were critical to help us sort of grow the business and get to where we were that even though they were furloughed, they, we were not able to get them back because they found something else. So yeah, that, that was a tough part of it. And, you know, and really the labor shortage for us is, has been an issue uh, ramping back up. I, I don't know if I talked really much about that in the, in the past, but not just the furloughing of employees, but just our temporary and seasonal staff. Um, you know, it was, it was very difficult to find, you know, some of the, the skill sets that we need on our production tours. And when we did, you know, a lot of times it was significantly more expensive. I mean, we pay probably 35 to 40% higher for our, our drivers. We have production tours and stages that sort of, you know, go across the country. You know, we're seeing 35, 40% increases on, on that skill set. 
And you see it with, you know, the supply chain discussions that we're having, you know, the port of LA here is backed up. The ships don't have enough people and enough trucks to take the cargo and then distribute it throughout the rest of the US. Well, those drivers are this, a lot of the same drivers that we use. And we were, we were having a very difficult time, um, you know, sort of retaining and bringing on and hiring people to sort of fill our needs as well. So yeah, the furloughed employees, it was a very difficult decision. We made, a, you know, we made the decision to go cut deep and cut hard um, because we didn't know when we we're gonna come out of it. And uh, we lost some good people as a result, which is an unfortunate part for us. I'm glad that you brought up the fact that, um, you know, we haven't really touched specifically too much about labor shortages. And I know that you briefly glanced over um, some microeconomic factors that seem to impact the future of live entertainment. But can we talk a little bit more specifically about the impact of, you know, inflation, supply chain, and if you have any further comments to add on the labor shortages and how these will impact um, live entertainment going back? Well, yeah, and I think it talks to the the sort of guidance that I'm looking at for our company for 2022 and in 2023. Um, you know, everyone knows about inflation. Ticket prices are up. I mean, we're, we actually didn't change our ticket prices for our events, but a lot of companies did. Concerts were more expensive. I mean, that's been sort of, you know, published out there. Um, so the top line is going to grow very well, but but there are, you know, the same inflationary pressures that we have the supply chain uh, uh, issues that the company is facing, the labor shortage that the all, a lot of industries are facing, that's all going to increase costs. So your top line is going to grow, but and depending on industry to industry and show to show, your costs are going to go up almost almost in the same at the same level. So it's going to be you know I'm really watching very closely, um, you know certainly our cost structure and try to manage you know, the increases that we have, because that's just going to, that's just going to take it right to the bottom line. Uh, and, it's, and it's forcing us to make decisions of, well, do we need, you know, five of those? Can we do it with four? Because really, you know, the cost of that, those are going higher and higher. So we're making a lot of sort of those business decisions that a lot of industries and companies are doing right now as well. But that's, you know, significant headwind, I think, to the entertainment industry going into 22 and certainly into 23. Top line, I think is gonna be really good. The question is, can, can you manage the cost structure effectively with those headwinds to really drive that positive you know, EBITDA and cash flow that you need to really sort of get you out of sort of the last two years? And Brian, you've talked a lot about the future of live entertainment. We've looked as far as 2023 uh, throughout the duration of this conversation, but there's a lot of uncertainty with the future um, of live entertainment on a multitude of layers, as you've brought up. But is there any other comments that you have on where live entertainment goes from here in your uh, perspective? I mean, yeah, again, I mean, there's... There have been a number of times where where either there was tragedy or maybe there are genres of music or types, you know, genres of entertainment that sort of were struggling where people were talking about, you know, is this kind of the not the end of live entertainment, but is this the start of the end? Um, and, and even now when you look at, you know, Facebook going into becoming meta and the metaverse and all these sort of sort of other avenues for entertainment, you know, and, and those are real. I mean, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, so many eyeballs. So, I mean, there, obviously there are other options for, for people now to, to get entertainment. 
but I still go back to when it comes to music, when it comes to you know theater, when it comes to really being there at live entertainment, there you can't replace that with a with a device, with a phone, with an iPad, with a computer. So, you know, I, I'm you know very still very bullish on um, you know live entertainment going beyond 23 and into the future. I, I just don't see it being replaced by you know all the all the different um, you know elements that are out there and, and variety that's out there today. So, um, must be very exciting for you, but we have an attendee who submitted a question who um, wants to give you um, support by saying that they too are also a USC alum. <laughs> but the attendee wants to know, what benefits or perks do you see companies needing to have to attract talent um, in this industry and now and both post pandemic, given that competition amongst um, industries and companies is right now? Well, and you're seeing that, you know, some of it's anecdotally, you know, there are, you know, bonuses and, and pay increases and different types of sort of benefits that companies are offering. But what I'm seeing is the very near term, it's real. It's everybody wants flexibility to work. Um, and that's, that's becoming kind of an ante to get into the game. You know, you have, you know, you have to offer that now to retain some of the, some of the best talent. Again, our company and the entertainment industry, I think, was is well poised to address that because of just the nature of, you know, sort of how we put on events. But what I'm seeing is, if you don't offer that, then you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. Um, you know, people are expecting that. So, you know, we offer that now. Uh, we have we haven't got into things like you know pay increases or other benefits like you know tuition reimbursement things like that. But you are seeing obviously companies do that. Amazon is leading the way. The number of companies are raising their minimum wage up higher. Um, then you hear, you know, in New York on Wall Street, the investment banking group are offering significant, you know, cash to sort of keep the analysts and the staff, you know, sort of retained within their company. So, yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of the anecdotal things that everyone else is probably seeing. But for us, we have to offer for any new people coming in and for our existing staff, flexible work from home options. And, be, and to be, you know, we're in Los Angeles. You can very easily have staff that drives an hour each way to get to work, sometimes 45 minutes, sometimes an hour and a half. You know, it's very rare you find someone that's very close to your office, unfortunately. So there's a real huge, you know, efficiency benefit for us to do that. And we sort of recognize that. We've realized it. And, and I feel like as a company, we're more efficient as a result. Thanks so much, Brian. So before I turn to my final question for you to kind of wrap up our conversation, um, sorry, I mean to say before I turn to the Q&A session, before we wrap up, I have one final question for you, which is seeing as there doesn't seem to be an end in sight um, in terms of a return to normalcy as we knew it. As a finance professional, what does that mean to you in terms of long-term financial planning in the performance and events industry? Well, look, I think any, any part of your long-term financial planning is you know, an assessment of risk, you know, whether it's competitive risk, whether it's industry risk, that's always been there. 
Now, there, now there's another risk element, which is you know a pandemic risk. And frankly, there was probably always some pandemic risk, but I don't know any company, at least that I've worked for, that really took it in any way other than you know that's a you know potential factor, but not really a, a real factor. So, yeah, looking at you know long-term strategy in your risk assessment, that has to be part of it now. And the way you combat that is is you know i think through building that cash nest egg you know building that that flexibility to ramp up or down of your staff um you know to sort of combat that so yeah i i think i think a lot of companies are, are doing the, the long-term risk assessment and this is going to be part of everybody's sort of you know strategy sessions going forward Thank you so much. And I am going to switch gears a little bit in reverting back to the question that I posed to you with regards to your advice for FBI chapters who are looking back to uh, live events. But there's an attendee question that asks, you know, there are differences between local and regional um, advices that are being given uh, when it comes to public gathering. Do you have any advice for someone who's planning to uh, planning a public event in the their interaction with local authorities. Well, look, I, I think you have to. You, sh you should always follow the guidance of your, you know, local, state, or city or county guidelines. I know we do here in, in Los Angeles. Um, you know, if it's an open air event, we we can do things a certain way. If it's a closed air event, we do things a certain way. And every, every, you know, we're requiring, you know, vaccination for. Um, you know, in, in some cases as well. So again, it's, it's where your local, you know, the temperature of handling it in your local environment is, is really the, the way to go. We, we initially were following the CDC, you know, certainly in early to mid 20, because that was the only guidance that we had. Now all the states sort of came around in the counties to have sort of more specific guidance based on, you know, case numbers and caseloads and hospital, um, you know, hospital capabilities. So, um, you know, again, I, you know, CDC is great and you should, and, and it does guide, I think a lot of the local rules, but your, your local, you know, city, county, state should really drive sort of how you're going to manage these events going forward. And to shift gears again once more, there's another attendee question that's come in that asks, have you looked into funds from the state of California? There appears to be a lot of new money available for entertainment companies. Yeah, we, we just we just saw one come through and I can't remember the name of it, but we are looking at it. Um, I think it, was, it, it had not passed yet in California legislation. And the name of it escapes me, and maybe it has now. We were looking at it a week or two ago, um, but yes, yeah, so there, there is there is some state money that's coming up. Uh, there are some restrictions on it, from what I remember as well, in terms of you know it would there there were clawbacks for whatever you received from the federal government, whether it's PPP or you know, in our case we you know shutter venue grants or Main Street lending. So, um, but yeah, I, I have seen and heard that coming over. Um, and that, that is something we're looking at as well. So yeah, thanks for, actually, thanks for reminding me on that. Thanks for bringing that up. 
On behalf of the attendee, I will say you're very welcome. <laughs> um, but there seems to be a question that's come in, and I wonder if you'd be able to speak to this, which is the pandemic has changed the way that people interact. And we've spoken about this time and time again with regards to the change of social behaviors, adopting a work from home model. But that's also um, changing the way that people mingle and network during their downtimes. Can you speak to, if you have the capacity to to speak to this, um, has that changed the approach that entertainment companies have with catering plans? Catering, so catering in terms of, you mean food or just uh, how they're catering to the, the change in behavior? Um, I'm assuming catering to the food, but if you can speak to both, that would also be great. Well, and, and yeah, and, and yeah, the catering sort of, again, sort of bolt on business to entertainment um, certainly in film and in TV was significantly hit, but it's really like a mini restaurant. So all the rules and regulations that you have, uh, whether it's, you know, you get the food now in kind of to go containers, which, which we see from restaurants, you know, it's sort of the changes that we're seeing in, in catering as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you, you view, you view your catering business, like it's a restaurant and however the restaurants are sort of adhering to the policies and procedures that are required for, again, the, the, the locality you're in is what should be followed. Awesome. Thank you so much. And um, to wrap up with a couple more attendee questions, there's an attendee who is reverting back to the question I posed to you in the discussion that we had with regards to mergers and acquisitions that are taking place within the entertainment industry. And the attendee wants to know what are the potential risks in the long term of M&As picking up speed within the entertainment industry? Well, I, I see it more on the opportunity side. I think the risk is, you know, a lot of the the targets uh, will probably have more debt than they would um, they would normally have. But you know, there, there's probably going to be a significant discount on on the M and A pricing. So multiples that would have been 10, 12, 15 x multiples on, let's say EBITDA, are now probably going to be in single digits. So there are going to be those discounts there to offset some of that risk. Um, and or the only other risk I can think of is if there are some permanent changes as a result of the pandemic to your business model. Obviously, if that creates more risk for an M&A target, then that's something that needs to be considered as well. But again, you know, that kind of falls into the, you know, that's sort of a, a multiple discount that you can get if that risk does exist. Um, but, you know, I, I see there's just tremendous opportunity, I think, in M&A because there are, there are a lot of companies out there that need that lifeline to stay afloat and alive, um, where companies come in, can come in with a minority position, some kind of infusion of capital to sort of, you know, collectively and together sort of, you know, build their business back up and hopefully longer term create value and, and a creative value really for both companies. It's exciting to hear that you have a very um, positive outlook on the m and so that's very refreshing to hear. But on the conversation, I'm going to switch gears again once more, um, but on the conversation that we had with regards to the funding and the support that you received from the government at the onset of the pandemic, there's an attendee who's curious to know whether the support that you received under the um, administrations has changed, given that we are now under a new administration. 
question. Is there anything that, uh, you know, coming from an entertainment company perspective, is there anything that you wish the government was doing more or less of? You know, we, we didn't, when, when the administration changed, we didn't see really an impact to the, the existing programs that were out there. I think there is still, you know, this willingness to provide support to the businesses that need that need the support. That was under the prior administration. I, I see that now as well. The only thing I wish they would have done differently, and it really does get down to a support perspective, is the SBA sort of became this, you know, this vehicle for a lot of the funding to come through. And the SBA, you know, and the banks as well, you know, we're not really equipped and able to handle the, the immense amount of volume that was coming through from, well, the government, you know, the, the, the terms of all these, these acts that came out uh, and funding mechanisms, and then their ability to, to take care of all the requests that were coming in. I mean, it's, it, it's created a lot of bottlenecks and angst, certainly for our company, for me personally, just because it was very hard to get answers, so much volume going through, the level of service that we used to get from the SBA wasn't there going forward. So what I wish they would have done differently, um, and this is sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, is you know, at least staff up the SBA and some of the local banks a little bit better earlier on in the process to really support small businesses like, like, like mine uh, to get that funding faster, um, you know, more efficiently through the process. Awesome. Awesome. I believe I was muted there for a second. But Brian, I just, we're coming to the top of the hour here and I want to take a second to thank you for your time, your insights, and just everything that you shared with us about your company and about the industry. I know I personally have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and can say that I will walk away with a lot more knowledge than I did coming into it. But as we wrap up, I want to ask you one final question, which is um, as a CFO of a preeminent dance production company who is still undergoing the challenges that come with the pandemic, do you have any concluding advice, any concluding comments or remarks that you want to leave our attendees with today? Well, look, I, I think, and I have this conversation a lot with, and I've had them before with my executive team and certainly with other companies, but I think, you know, building up the balance sheet better, that rainy day fund, that's always something that was, yes, we'll get to it if we can. That's something that always gets put, put on the back burner because there's always an opportunity to spend money today to make an investment in tomorrow, which you should always still continue to do. But look, I, I think, you know, building up that rainy day fund that we've never had before now is sort of, you know, increased significance, certainly to the executives that aren't close to the financials, um, you know, going forward. So I think, you know, having those conversations are a lot easier now from a CFO perspective and they're, they're necessary and required uh, to do so. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Siobhan.